Today's episode is brought to you by Stream by AlphaSense, an expert interview transcript library that integrates AI-generated call summaries and NLP search technology so their clients can quickly pinpoint the most critical insights. Start your free trial at www.streamrg.co backslash PMC. That's S-T-R-E-A-M-R-G.co slash PMC. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. Do me a quick favor. If you like what you hear at Planet Microcap, please take two seconds and give us five stars on Spotify or Apple. This helps with the search engines so that more folks can also discover and engage with all things microcap stocks. Our next investor conference is coming up. We're about a month away from the Planet Microcap Showcase Vancouver on September 6th and 7th, 2023 at the Fairmont Waterfront, Vancouver. We have announced presenting companies, sponsors, speakers. Uh, some of those speakers include Dave Barr from Pender Fund, Harold Leishman and Brent Todd from Canaccord, Ryan Irvin from Keystone Financial, Hamid Shabazi from Well Health Technologies, and Paul Andriola from Small Cap Discoveries. Be sure to check out the website to learn more, see the agenda, register and attend. Everything you need is there. So please go to planetmicrocapshowcase.com. It is complimentary for investors to attend. And I look forward to seeing you in Vancouver. My guest on the show today is Ben Claremont, host of the Compounders podcast. Ben and I have been in the lab focused on a reimagining of the Compounders podcast, and we're finally ready to unveil some exciting new content on that podcast feed. I invited Ben on Planet Microcap today to talk about the new look Compounders podcast and what it's all about, plus banks, the entertainment industry, small cap value, as well as what he describes as quiet compounders. Be sure to subscribe to the Compounders podcast audio feed, which is available on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your audio podcasts, as well as on the Planet Microcap YouTube channel. Thank you again for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast, and please enjoy my conversation with Ben Claremont. Ben, good to see you, man. What's going on? Not much. I, I don't even remember when the last time I was on this podcast. <laughs> I see you all the time on Compounders, but I don't know when I was on your podcast. So it's just, this is fun. <laughs> this is exciting. Let's let's have some fun here. A hundred percent. Yeah, I think I, I, you're right, dude. I, I mean, I probably could easily just look up and see like, oh, yeah, this is when Ben was last on. But um Listen, it's been it, it has been that long. And I figured, hey, look, we're in the summer. We haven't had you on in a while, you know, and I, I always appreciate your takes as to what you're seeing in the markets and everything like that. And plus, you know, a little bit later in the pod, as people will hear, you know, they'll already hear it in the intro. But we're also going to be talking about, you know, the Compounders podcast as well and some of the exciting new things we're going to be rolling out on that show. So, you know, to start us off, Ben, you know, like I said, we're about mid, we're recording this on uh, Friday, July 7th halfway through 2023 give us your kind of initial take on the year that is has been so far 2023 do you remember it all i barely remember it all yeah no it's it's, it's been a weird year and I, I mean and and i say that from a from a position of of you know 
the portfolio that I manage has done pretty well. And um, so I, I feel pretty good about that. But it's been strange in that there was this period where everybody was really worried about the banking system. And now that seems to almost like as completely abated, right? Like the world was on the brink, right? Twitter was blowing up. The world was on the brink. All the banks were going to fail. And um, for someone who hasn't strategically hasn't owned regional banks at all during, I don't know, ever basically in, 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 the, in the history of, of running the, the Smith strategy that I run, it was just kind of watching from the sidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that, fervor and the ever this that's like whatever the, the 2009 2.0 and all the banks are going to fail like that that has just subsided and i don't think the structural problems that banks are facing whether it's you know what do they do with rising interest rates when when people expect more from their deposits what are they going to do with the commercial real estate world which i think is just going to be uh continually pressured um, as office spaces remain vacant, as commercial, re- you know, that kind of retail spaces, especially in downtowns, look very, like very challenging places to be invested. So like, I think, I think banks are still, there's still far too many of them. The big banks have just got, you know, the too big to fail banks are just now so powerful and so big. You know, obviously they're not going to serve this, a small community quite as well as, as, as maybe a small community bank, but I just think being a subscale bank in 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 a world where your deposits can all fly out, you know, with a click of a button, click of a button is a very dangerous place to be. So I have continued to watch that space from the sidelines, trying to figure out if there's anything that excites me. And I've just, you know, I've I've kind of come to a place where an invest as an investor, where I say to myself, "Is this a dragon I want to slay?" And and if and if I don't have a strong opinion about you know, whether I'm going to be able to have some kind of differentiated perspective or an edge in a bank or, or the bank banking uh, banks as, as a whole, I figure I might as well watch from the sideline. hundred percent. That's a great place to start. I mean, you know, as you know, like I, we work with uh, Andrew, with Andrew Walker a lot on yet another value podcast. And that's actually been probably like, if I had to make a, uh, like a circle chart of like what topic has been covered probably the most of the last like three or four months has been talking about banks, regional banks, and, and just, kind of covering, you know, all our thoughts there. And I, I don't know if you've heard any of the episodes I've been talking about. And, and I'll just it, being perfectly honest, some of the stuff is definitely even a little over my head as I'm, I don't follow banks as closely as, as he does or some other folks out there. But that has been getting a lot of it or just the regional banks has definitely been a big topic of conversation as to whether they're going to get continued to get rolled up or if there is any value there. So I, I'm curious as to how this is going to kind of play itself out for the rest of 2023. Yeah. I mean, I've, I have no idea and you know, what the, what the rest of the year is going to look like, I guess the way I, and most people don't know this about me, but I started my career back in 2007 in long short fund. And I basically cut my teeth during the financial crisis, shorting re- regional banks. Now that was a different situation. That was wow. a, wasn't, that wasn't a lot of liquidity issues, which is what basically killed, Silicon Valley and and um, First Republic, the, that was balance sheet issues, right? Companies had put a lot of mortgage-backed securities onto the balance sheet that were not worth the you know the paper they're written on, and so you could you could do a screen on Cap IQ for any kind of MBS as a percentage of the total assets, and you know we we shorted a couple banks to zero back then. So it's a space that I've actually spent a fair amount of time in, not as much recently, but but historically. So it's funny. So I, I still have relationships on the sell side with some some 
some sell side firms who focus on regional banks. And I take regional bank meetings every periodically just to meet with management teams and, and talk to them and, and see what they're thinking. And see, I'm always looking for some kind of differentiated perspective. Like we had, we had Aaron Graff from TFIN on compounders, totally different kind of guy, like not, not thinking like a banker, traditional bank, community banker, or regional banker, thinking like a business person, thinking about someone who wants to compound capital. So, you know, that was the rarity. He's a rarity in the space. And so I, I guess I always ask people the same question is, what does a compounder look like in the regional bank space? And it's kind of a tough question for people to answer because, you know, these are highly regulated institutions that have capital requirements and M&A has really gotten pretty difficult because there's, you know, there's all kinds of the, the Fed's been pretty, I think the Fed's and the OCC and the different, the different regulators are looking at deals, you know, a, a little more carefully than in the past Um but, but the, frankly, there are far too many banks and there, sh there should be consolidation over time because I think scale, especially and and fee fee income as opposed to interest, interest spread income becomes more important over time, um, I think, for to, for the stability of a lot of institutions. But my, my, my general point is that I don't know how many compounders there are in regional banks. And so is there possibly a great trade here in you know, some of the larger regional banks that aren't going to go anywhere, right, that that have good balance sheets and and have geographically interesting um, footprints. I, I'm sure there is. But I but could you make the case that there's through M&A and just whatever compounding book value that there's going to be some of these stocks that are worth three or four times what they're worth in, now in seven years? I just I, I don't know if that's the case. And look, I'm I'm open to suggestion. It's possible to that that I'm missing something, um, but to me, I look at regional banks specifically as a trade. And since I run a concentrated portfolio, of 22 stocks, things I want to own five, seven, ten years later, I don't, I haven't come across a bank aside from you know Tiffin, which I which I don't own, but I but I you know but I think what Aaron's building at Triumph is really interesting. You know, I haven't really come across anything that was exciting to me to say, you know, I have a limited number of slots in the, in the strategy, and this is this is where I'm going to allocate one. Very good. So, you know, another topic I wanted to talk to you about in terms of, you know, what you're seeing, like another theme that we've covered actually a bit in terms of just if we're looking at the interviews that we've done over the years uh, on compounders is um, kind of entertainment, entertainment adjacent industry and, and some of the stuff you're seeing there. I mean, if people want to go back through the archive, we've had, you know, the CEOs of Wild Brain on there, um, you know, Picks and Shovels and, and Avid, uh, Thunderbird on the entertainment side, IAC, you know, again, a little entertainment, entertainment adjacent, you know. So I'd love to get your take also on what's what you're seeing in, in the landscape there, because I mean, listen, I listen to as many podcasts as I can on the entertainment industry. I, I think it's fascinating. Like I listen to The Town, uh, that that's a great show on the Ring Podcast Network, but like you know, from your perspective and having covered the space quite a bit and doing, doing some deep deep dive due diligence on either some of the names said here and, and otherwise, you know, I'd love to hear what you what your thoughts are there. Yeah, I mean, this you're, this is coming from someone who did a podcast on Lionsgate specifically called this, you know, this time is different in Lionsgate. So, um, you know, don't own Lionsgate anymore, but uh, have spent a lot of time in this space. And so, and look, I'm not a media only analyst. I'm a journalist. So, so, you know, you have to take my comments from, you know, cause I, I, you know, with a grain of salt in the sense that I don't, I don't cover this full time like other people, but I think, I think what we've seen over the last few years was just this huge amount of excitement around streaming and right. How that was going to transform the businesses. 
and there was a land grab and everybody tried to get subs as fast as they could. And the idea was to put as much content on there as possible in order to win that kind of land grab. Right. And so, you know, everyone came out with their own version of a plus and they stuffed it with as much content as possible. And I think what we're seeing is you read the headlines today and Disney's pulling more stuff off of their, their, their platform is that quality is what people really want. And obviously there needs to be a certain degree of quantity as well, but quality is what people are, are, are focused on. I mean, they're just, they're too many shows you know, like between sports and movies and, you know, all the, all the other things people watch, like how can you possibly consume it all? And so I, I think what we're seeing is a rationalization of spend. And that's not going to surprise anybody that, you know, people have pulled back on how much they're spending on the streaming platforms. One, because I think there's the excitement has worn off and, you know, it's, the, the the management teams have realized that they're not that the people are not actually going to value these companies on some like sub number right like here's a core business is worth x times EBITDA and then you know you pay you know whatever some some amount of dollars per 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 streaming sub like that no one's actually valuing these companies like that anymore that was a very 2020 and 2021 phenomenon um and so I think consolidation makes sense. I think for like, let's take Lionsgate, for example, I think Lionsgate has a subscale studio and has a business in stars, which needs to be combined with another, another entity where costs are cut and an amount of, you know, content spending is cut, marketing spending is, is cut, but I don't know who the buyers are, right? That's the crazy thing. And look, these are, these are trophy assets in some ways. And so you can always have some third party, whether it's a wealthy person, you know, we're a wealthy individual or a foreign company or, you know, whatever the Qatari sovereign fund wants to own, you know, whatever Lionsgate or something like that, that, that those, those things are possible. I just think the logical buyers are, are not in a position to continue to consolidate. Like I, this is total speculation, but it just doesn't feel to me like Brian Roberts and, and, and Comcast are really excited about expanding that business. Um, I mean, are there synergies between, you know, NBC Universal and Lionsgate, for example, and could you put could you put a lot of interesting, you know, whatever Hunger Games theme parks at at, at with NBC Universal's parks business? Yeah, of course. I just don't think anybody's really excited to continue to put up billions of dollars in capital to continue to consolidate. Discovery doesn't have the balance sheet to do it. Viacom, you know, doesn't have the balance sheet to do it, and and probably that deal's too big for for a lot of people to 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 come to 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 um you know, whatever, sorry, but what I call Viacom, Paramount, sorry, Paramount, whatever, they've been through so many names, but Paramount, right? Like too many, <laughs> you know, it's too big a deal. So I just, I think you're in this weird situation where the balance sheets of the industry don't match the, 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 the basically requirement for continued consolidation. And so I have no idea how this plays out because you're talking about an industry with as many egos and rich, you know, very rich people, you know, going from Sherry Redstone to Brian Roberts to, the Lionsgate management team, like, I don't like who's willing to give up, who's willing to, to whatever, have their, you know, have their business consolidated and, and torn apart to, for, for the, for cost savings and synergies. I don't know. And so, you know, I, I think. And this, this reflects a lot of how I've started to think of an investor and I'll, I'll be self-critical and say, I've spent way, way too much of my life 
pontificating on like who's going to buy whom and what the you know just like playing this like uh whatever almost like fantasy football game of like well this like if this happened then this happened and this happened and it's just like it's not reality right like there's 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 and i think there's 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 a lot of brain damage that comes from from speculating on 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 acquisitions because the base rate is that in most years, most companies don't get acquired. The vast majority of companies don't get acquired. So again, I think there's a logical consolidation in that space. Um, and I think it will continue. I just don't know who the buyers are. And I don't know whether the big guys like a Disney um, or uh, you know, a Comcast are really like itching to put a lot more money. Like if I have a dollar of capital, I don't think they have, I don't think the studio business is, is like where you really want to put it. Or I think Disney would probably rather spend it on parks and, and things where they have a lot more pricing power and there's less commoditization. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if there's one thing when you think back to like, let's, let's think back to like 2020 when just using Marvel as an example, right. And there was nothing for, you know, with, with the, with the, you know, everything going on with the, with the, with the pandemic and there's no movies out there. There's no, the Disney plus hadn't been launched yet. So there's no shows, you know, there was such a pent up demand for content during that time. And I almost, and this, I don't know if this is an original take or not, it probably isn't, but it almost seems like there has to be some of that pent up demand again. You know, we've just gotten completely flushed and just so much out there and I'm like what the heck are you going to watch and as a res- and and also i mean from a company perspective and just building their businesses they've just poured so much capital into all these different things that it's like and most of it isn't good <laughs> you know like i trust me i i think we my wife and i have tried like at least 10 shows and gotten one two episodes in and we're like this is not good like why am i watching this right now that's not to say there isn't good stuff out there but it it just it, it seems like, you know, it's it's almost kind of random that the strike happened at, a, you know, at like almost an opportune time for these studios where it's like, all right, like maybe this wasn't the I mean, obviously, you don't want to see eight people out of work. That's that's awful and everything. But I'm sure they're also thinking themselves, well, you know, maybe we do need to create some demand for product, for content. And I mean, maybe there's other ways of doing it. But like at least with the strike, there isn't going to I mean, they have stuff that's already been uh made and they're putting out there but you know at least now probably for the next 12 months after all that stuff's been put out there like there's not going to be as much content i mean i think and here's here's an interesting thought i think is that usually there's there's very little overlap between strong brands and ubiquity what was special about disney is that you got movies whatever you know whatever you got a couple Pixar films a year, a few Marvel films a year, maybe new a new live action off, off of a of a previous IP, but now it's all available at your fingertips whenever you want at zero marginal cost to watch an, another movie. And I wonder out loud whether the you know the brand the, I mean Disney has I think one of the most iconic brands in the world, right? I wonder if the ubiquity of content and the constant accessibility of content, um, you know, starts to hurt the, the Disney brand over time or any of these companies' brands. I just, when I, and, and look, I think I've, you know, I followed the theater industry for years and I've, I've followed, you know, the theater, the actual physical theaters, plus I followed this industry for a long time. I think the smartest thing anyone ever told me about this is like, 
people will go to the movies and people will spend money if their content is good. Right. And I just, I think that there's just from my perspective, and then this is just like a personal taste thing. There's just doesn't seem to be a whole lot of originality out there. Right. Like everything's a superhero spinoff or, you know, a spin, you know, a, a remake of something that was, was made 20, 30 years ago. And I, I get why there's like, from a risk management perspective, like there's less chance that these things are going to completely flop, right? If there's some nostalgia associated with it. But I think the originality, you know, is is a lot of that contents in TV now, right? Not that I watch any TV or a whole lot of TV, but from what I can tell, right? Like the the, the kind of the shows that people like the Ted Lasso's of the world, um, you know, you know the, the bear, like maybe, you know, that's where people are putting out comes so like, totally original stuff and the movies have just gotten so so i mean it's just it seems it's very formulaic and it's been that true for for a while but i wonder whether you know the combination of the brands being somewhat um and this is it just doesn't feel like there's as much special about it when you can yeah. for 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 whatever 12.99 a month you can have all the Disney shows. And so maybe they do need to pull stuff off. Maybe they do need to spend less. Maybe. Well, well they're maybe doing that anyway, is, just to cut costs. Yeah. yeah. Maybe less is maybe less is more. Maybe we have, there's too much content and look, maybe like there just can't be a million great investment professionals, right? They just can't, the, the definition, that's just by definition, that can't be true. Maybe there can't be that many shows that people watch, right? Like maybe there's a, just a limit to the number of creative people who can come up with a show that actually resonates with people. And so, you know, maybe the pendulum has swung way too far towards more content versus quality content. And I think that, I think the brands will benefit and these companies will benefit their balance. sheet certainly will, right. If they just rationalize. Right. And, and I, I think basically everyone has figured out that, you know, it's hard to compete with Netflix and, and being trying to be everything to everyone and, and competing with Netflix on, on like the number of films available on the quantity is just it's it's a it's a it's a losing game um financial perspective and a balance sheet perspective i think what would be what will be really telling is uh the opening weekend for oppenheimer and barbie now, you know not to get too in the weeds on like different movies and stuff but those seemingly are the two original movies most original movies that i I can think of that are like kind of in that blockbustery or kind of marketed as that blockbustery. So it would be interesting to see how they, I mean, I know personally, like I, I would love, I kind of want to see them both, you know, like I think that'd be really fun um, just because it is like an original things. And I think there is that pent up demand just for that. Just like, give me some original. I don't want to see just, I'm give me, I'm done with the superhero for a bit. Like I'm good. And I love Marvel, all that stuff. Like I'm just, give me a break. Like I, I can't see that anymore. Yeah, but I think I think you're totally right. And look, I think this is a very cyclical thing, right? The movies that we are seeing now, you know, whatever, there's read the headlines about flops, Disney flops, and whether it's whether it's you know the new Pixar movie that hasn't done particularly well or Indiana Jones, like these are movies that have been in the making for years, right? And so if you have a management change at Disney or or at any of these these companies, it, it takes years for that change of philosophy of philosophy to play out. So yeah, you can have films that, you know, just, just look at what happened with, with DC, right? Like when, when discovery comes in, they look at the DC film, film slate and they're like, this is awful. Like we can't put this stuff out. Right. Like it's going to take 
we're, and we're not going to see the whatever the new direction of DC for a while until we can figure until that until the whatever the Zaslav and and, and team figure out what that's going to be. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's cyclical. I still believe in movies. I still think that people are going to go pay to see them. You know, especially you know original content. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I it's it's if it, it feels way too formulaic, and it, it was it was I don't know. I I, I think. A reset, maybe that's a strike. Maybe that's the losses that everyone's been seeing in the in the streaming business. I think a reset's going to be really healthy for the industry. And um, you know, maybe what what happens over time is that the consolidation just just whatever doesn't happen all at once, but it just it, it finally rationalizes the 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 space enough that there's not this proliferation of content that 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 basically almost almost de- devalues the brands because there's just so much of it. percent. I think, I think we pretty much covered our, our entertainment and uh, streaming and all that, all that good stuff takes there. I mean, you know, in terms of a uh, uh, first half 2023 or even, even, you know, year or whatever, is there anything else that we missed that, that you've been following closely, you know, from even just like in general, just a value investing perspective, you know, looking at small cap values or anything in particular you wanted to uh, address or cover or discuss? Yeah, I mean, I, I, my portfolio requires so little maintenance um, that it's like, it's, it's a wonderful feeling to me. Like I, the market's up, the market's down so much of, of what I focus on is like, what are these companies going to be worth in three or three, five, seven years? Right. And, you know, I have a portfolio for which, you know, I have a, I have conviction that these a lot of these businesses are going to be much bigger in seven years than they are now. And so what happens this quarter, what they said on the call, you know, what sell side analysts are saying, you know, what the quarterly estimates or next year's estimates look like, you know, I, I've, I'm more and more, I think, impervious to that and try to stay, you know, pretty far outside of that kind of thinking. Um, now, obviously, you have to continue to do due diligence on your companies and look for disconfirming information on your uh, given your your, you know, your prior beliefs. So I, that's always true. Um, and look, in, and no one has a hundred percent hit rate. So I own twenty two stocks. I think they're all going to be worth a lot more valuable in, in seven years. But who knows, right? Like I think sixty five seventy percent hit rate on that would be exceptional because it's just not that easy. So you know, I, I think with, with that context. I kind of am just a spectator of what's going on in the broader market, whether it's whatever five stocks driving the S&P, whether it's, you know, whatever people got super excited about energy. Now, obviously people are not excited about energy. You know, the, the regional banks basically collapsing around. It's just been like a very weird year where, um, you know, the where the damage has been, you know, been felt most acutely has kind of just passed by. Um, and so I feel lucky in that way. And, and, you know, I, I, I've, I've never had an, like, I, I've, I've never had a portfolio where I don't worry a whole lot about every earnings call and be like, Oh no, what is Lionsgate going to say about their slate? Or, Oh no, what, what's going to happen in Lumen's uh, uh, B2B segment? Are they going to keep shrinking? Like, I don't own those stocks anymore. And look, I've been, I, I look. I did a podcast called "My Worst My My Worst Investment Ever," 
Um, I, I was on that podcast and I talked about Lumen. So look, I've been public about it. I was totally wrong. Right. And, 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 you know, I've, I've, the lessons, I think stocks can be mentors and that can be good or bad, right? Some, some stocks that have done really well can be good mentors and other stocks that, that you were strongly convicted on that you're public about that you've done a lot of work on. Right. And it doesn't work. Right. Like that can be a mentor in a good way and teaches you, you know, teaches you pattern recognition that can be helpful for the rest of your career. Um, and so, you know, one of the points of clarity that I've developed, you know, had over the last six months is I had a, I had the opportunity to sit back and say, if I had a clean sheet of paper and I could, and I could craft a portfolio of companies that I followed for years and I'd want to own with no legacy cost positions, no, 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 you know, no, no one saying you, you, you talked about this on the podcast. You, that means you have to own it, right? Like if you just started from today, what would you own? Right. I had the moment of clarity where I said, like, I'm going to own for the next three, five, seven years. I'm going to, I'm going to try to own businesses that, that are getting more valuable over time. Um, and if, if that, if the answer to the question is, is this business getting more valuable? If the answer is no, or maybe then it's out, right? Because I've just learned that a cheap valuation or, you know, a sale process or some kind of divestiture or, you know, some of the parts analysis is not going to protect you against a business from a business that's getting less valuable over time. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you look at the portfolio today, it is a manifestation of six or seven years of, you know, trial by fire as being a portfolio manager of learning the kind of investor that I really wanted to be um, and evolving to um, have, be willing to draw a line in the sand on the question of, is the business getting more valuable? And look, as I said, the hit rate's not going to be hundred percent. I'm going to be wrong about that. But I think that it's much better to say to believe a business is going to be getting more valuable over time and to maybe pay up for that and and be wrong right because it will be be wrong for me i'm much more comfortable being wrong in that than i am being wrong about a business that um i think is i know is getting um less valuable over time but i think it's cheap right because i think those i think there's your downside is much worse in the latter scenario so it's you know to, to long-winded way of saying you know it's been this year being kind of spared from where the damage has occurred. And then look, I know the markets are up, but there's obviously been some, you know, there's been some, some collateral damage in that process. Um, it's, it's been, um, it's allowed me to really um, shape the portfolio in a way that I think, um, you know, is much more like a coffee can portfolio than, you know, one that is dependent on, you know, what happens in capital markets or who's buying whom. Amen. I think, right. Uh, <laughs> that, that was, that was pretty good, man. I, I like, I like you on your soapbox when you do that stuff, mm. but you know, I want to now transition to um, one of our main topics here today. You know, um, as some folks know, you know, uh, we also uh, co-produce a show together called compounders uh, where Ben is the host. I'm producer Bobby on that show. And, you know, we've been putting out episodes, you know, here and there a little bit, you know, it's, it's uh, sometimes, 
as as probably most folks know who are in the podcast game, getting guests is not the easiest thing in the world. Um, and also, especially with what we were trying to do with bringing on some small cap companies, like, hey, some of those management teams, uh, you know, they're kind of running some like, you know, multi-billion dollar businesses in some respects. So sometimes that's, uh, you know, the lead time, it's, it's a little bit, you know, uh, harder than than maybe some, you know, getting some micro cap CEOs on the podcast. But I say all that because, you know, we love this brand of compounders and we love being able to feature, you know, not just, you know, company CEOs and doing deep dives into those businesses, but there's also some other folks that we feel that could benefit from this platform and, and just really benefit from being kind of questioned in a good way um, by Ben. Because, you know, with all of Ben's experience being in finance for as long as he has and doing the type of due diligence that he's done. So, you know, Ben, I'll let you take it away here. You know, what are what are some of our, you know, reimagining, so to speak, of compounders and and what folks maybe can expect in the next few episodes or or even for the foreseeable future? Yeah, I think more than a reimagining, I think of as more of an expanding the scope. Right. So uh, let's go, the scope. I like that. Let's yeah. let's let's go back to the origin story of compounders, which is that I, you know, I love podcasts. I, I it's a great medium for um for me personally. You know, I have young kids, you know, I'm it's not I don't have as much time to read as I like. And so, you know, I think podcast is a great it's a great venue for me to continue to learn and get better as an investor, as a person, you know, all kinds of different outlets. Uh, and so the idea was that I thought that there was a, a kind of a hole in the market for our investor-led conversations with public company CEOs. There are plenty of conversations, uh, you know, kind of like investors talking to other investors and um, investors talking to private company CEOs. Uh, and but there weren't that many opportunities for like an investor-led conversation, like a like a true due diligence conversation with a public company CEO. And you know, obviously, you've 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 started to do a lot of those yourself which is great. Um, and um, I've, I, I, when I think about the compounders brand, you know, I think it can be expanded to include a, some different things other than just public company CEO conversations. Um, and look, everything, like I'm, I'm a brand maniac in a lot of ways. Like I want to be brand consistent. If you look at our, you know, our, like our, our, our sponsors, like I always want, you know, I want the, our sponsors to be consistent with our brand and like the products that I've, I actually use and like. And so, you know, that's so I think there are there are different routes that we can go and be consistent with that brand and provide value to both our partners who we're interviewing and then but also provide provide content to people that that, um, you know, through the compounders lens, through my personal diligence lens, that would be interesting for people. So what what does that consist of? So obviously public company CEOs that will continue to be a focus and and a you know uh, like anytime we can get an interesting public company exec on on the on the podcast we will definitely do that. But why not private company CEOs as well? So for instance, we recently had Delupa CEO Thomas Lee on the podcast. I thought that was an excellent show. Um, you know, I personally it was, it was really good. Yeah, he was really, really good. Like, I, you know, I, it's it's hard. Like, I I listen to you know I've listened to all of our shows, obviously, and I like a lot of them. But that was that he's a very interesting thinker, and I learned about data companies and like the way data companies are structured, the way the, the you know the the way they um you know the, the the way the cost structure works, the initial investment versus ongoing investment. I just learned a lot about 
about data companies that I wouldn't have learned. And so, look, I love, this is what I love about this podcast is that I get to learn from people who've been successful. So, um, yeah, we're going to do some more private company um, interviews. And so I've got one other one lined up, a really interesting guy who just, just so cool. So, like he's founded, found another company, really cool. I mean, I'm, I'm excited to have him on. And look, if, if, if people, people listening to this say, hey, I know of a private company that would would love to be on Compounders, like who thinks the right way, like because we've got this brand and you kind of know how we think. Return on invested capital, cash flow, um, long term thinking, right? Culture really being really important. These are things that we talk about all the time. Um, you know, if anybody has any recommendations, we're open to it. Or if you, you know, you, you know, anybody who runs a company who who thinks that this would be a good platform, um, you know, seeing kind of what what we did with with Thomas, um, even though it's a private company, I'm, I'm we're happy to. We're happy to take suggestions. And so that's that's another route that I'm going to continue to pursue. Um, and and then the last one, and this is something that Bobby and I we've told, you know, we've talked about a lot, is like, okay, should we have other investors on the podcast? And if we did that, what would be the right, what would be the right topic of conversation? Like, because going back to that original point is that like one of the things that I didn't want this to be, because I think people, there are plenty of good podcasts out there where investors are talking to other investors. So I don't, I don't want, I didn't want, I don't want to put out, like we talked about this and I don't think we want to put out like a me too product or me too um, podcast that just is very similar to, to what else is out there. Um, And so kind of what I've settled on and, and, and in, in, and through our discussions is that, there are two types of investor interviews that we think are consistent with the compounders brand. And then the first would be, um, you know, interviews with well-established firms that specifically invest in the compounder like companies that we've had on the podcast in the past. So these are, you know, these are firms that speak the compounders language that see the world the way that I do in terms of returns and, um, and cash flows and management incentives and culture, um, Modes, durable competitive advantages. Like, I mean, so we're gonna. That I think is a place where um, you know that's it's it's very consistent with the 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 themes that we have discussed on compounders from the very beginning. And then there's a second group that uh, is kind of come to my attention recently as I've you know kind of been it is chatting with a lot of people, some, some people who are starting new funds and it's surprising the degree to which people are um, launching new funds, given a lot of, you know, how hard it is when you talk anecdotally to people uh, about when it comes to raising money these days. But I think there's the topic of compounding and building an investment firm from the ground up is actually something that's really interesting to me and I think would be interesting to listeners as well. So the second group of people, um, there'll be that established firms group and then there'll be the, the, the second group, which will be newer firms and funds where the focus will be on how to build an investment firm that compounds over time. Now, our, you know, my promise to listeners is that everything we do will always employ a holistic framework. So that means that similar to how in our company, public company interviews, we're always talking about, you know, whatever, like returns and cash flows and margins, um, but also incentives and um, compensation and culture, right? We Like everything that, that is required to build a good public company that can last and compound 
you know, we're going to employ a similar framework when it comes to uh, these newer funds and also the, the existing funds. And so we're going to talk about everything from investment philosophy. We're, we're going to address the concept of what a compounder means to, to, to the investors. We're going to talk about process. We're going to talk about, I think, something that's very under-discussed is portfolio construction and position sizing. Uh, we're going to talk about how to build a lasting investment culture, um, how to retain, attract, attract people. Yeah, sorry, how to retain people, how to attract people, how to compensate people. And then the question of why does this firm exist? There are million investment firms out there. What are the inefficiencies that is the inefficiencies that a firm is attempting to take advantage of? Um, also, I think a topic that is a little bit taboo because you know a lot of a lot of people in this, in, in especially in the investment industry, want want everyone to believe that they always know everything that could be known and that they're always right. But I, I personally have evolved a lot as an investor, and I believe in evolution. So I, I like to ask tough questions about how people plan to evolve as an investor, hope to evolve as, as an investor, or how they've evolved as an investor, understanding that this is a journey and this is not a sprint and there's no end point to becoming a better investor. And so everyone should be evolving. Um, and then last but not least, the business of investment management, including raising capital from investors, keeping your investors happy, communicating with investors. So you see there's this you know, there's a lot to running an investment firm, and I've been blessed in my in my history to have, you know, spent time in marketing and branding and, and business development, you know, compliance, trading. Like I've I've seen a lot be working at a small firm where you have to wear a lot of hats, and so I hope my hope is that that lens and that experience um, through this kind of, through the podcast process can get people listeners exposure to you know how how to think about building an investment firm that can be a compounder and so generally our hope is to bring a consistent roster of compelling guests who have interesting takes on all of the various angles of compounding um and the you know the aperture will be wide enough to include investors and and ceos and and who knows what else right like authors i mean i, I think i think we can stay brand consistent and you know, not pigeonhole ourselves into you know the the very difficult challenge of consistently getting public company CEOs to come on the show. A hundred percent, and I'm I'm so excited about this. You know, um, expanding expansion of focus, as we're calling it. Um, just because I mean, there's one of the reasons I love working with you and and love your show is that you know you you really do the deep dive. Uh, due diligence, you know, on a guest and, you know, if it was a company on the company prior to like, you, everyone should see so the, the, the questions that Ben sends. I'm just like, oh my goodness. Like if this, if I was getting this, I, I would be like, I don't know, maybe, maybe not, <laughs> but they're really, it's, it's really quite uh, uh, robust and, 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 and good. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, I think we've covered everything. I'm excited about it. Let's get, we're going to get some guests on here probably relatively soon, you know, and, um, where can everybody go and, well, I, I guess I can answer that, but you know, Ben, you tell people where can they go and subscribe to compounders, follow you on social media and hear all of your takes on what's going on in the markets. Yeah. So yeah, the compounders podcast, you put that in Google and you can find it, you know, and, and you can find me at Ben Claremont on Twitter. Um, that's, that's a good place to find it. I mean, I think, I, I I think one of 
one of the most important things about podcasts is to be top of mind and where compounders, which, you know, when I go back through our episodes and I send them to people, we still get really good feedback and people discover it and they're like, wow, I did not know this existed. And so that's awesome and gratifying to me. But I think where, you know, and I'm whatever, I'm probably one of the more self-critical people you'll ever meet and, and self-reflective, but like where I think we haven't done a great job is the consistency. And so I think by expanding the scope a little bit, we can be more consistent and look, everything is going to, you know, be brand consistent, but also like, been consistent is probably the best way to say it's like in terms of the process, right? I like, I'm going to, I'm going to do the work. I'm going to, I'm going to try to like be focused on sourcing interesting people. Hopefully a lot of whom who you haven't heard of kind of like how we did with compounders, the, the, with the public company CEOs interviews, like there are a lot of people, a lot of names you'd never, a lot of people never heard of, but who are really great thinkers and philosophers when it comes to building businesses. And so I, I like that. And, and look, I think, we're going to bring we're going to bring interesting conversations about the struggle for building investment firms, you know, the struggle for incentivizing and retaining people, the struggle in raising capital and and the struggle of beating a very challenging market and and but also the optimism that comes with starting a new firm and the differentiation that still can be in the market. Um, if you if you have a, a group of people who are, um, you know, kind of like if you assemble the right uh, right team. And then hopefully on the pub, on the private companies, like I, I had so much fun doing that Thomas Lee interview. I just want to do more of them, and I hope I hope other people enjoy them. I, I just I think we can we can profile some interesting companies that a lot of people haven't heard of. And so if that's if that's what we're doing is bringing you content um, that you know and people that you might not have exposure to um, through you know with all you know with with my diligence process associated with it. I think I think it'll be fun for me. I think it'd be fun for you, Bobby, and hopefully it will resonate with people um, and then layering on that consistency will make us more top of mind for, you know, for, you know, for going forward. Look at us, you know, at one point in the podcast, we were saying there was just too much content out there. They need to less And here we go. We're now throwing out more content for everybody. <laughs> but uh, it, it's, it's quality though. We're, you know, don't worry. It's quality. Uh, try, that's always been the focus. And, and, and look, I, I think uh, I, I, I actually, I really like doing this. I think I've, I found through this process that I like talking to people. I mean, I think I knew that already, but it's really hitting home um, and developing relationships with people. And so um, I, I, if, if, but, but what we want is we want to be a good partner. And that's, that's like day one, like ground zero, be a good partner, whether that's public company CEOs, whether that's a private company CEOs, or that's two investors where we're hopefully exposing them to a world you know, world of listeners that may not have known them and, 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 and appreciated their, you know, their niches and their skill sets. So um, if, as long as we can continue to be good partners um, and I think the content is, is, is like, is, will resonate with people. We're going to continue to source interesting guests. Very good. All right, Ben, I think we're there, dude. Thank you so much for joining me on the Planet Microcap podcast. I'm excited to share with everyone what we're going to be doing with compounders and uh, hey, have a nice weekend. And uh, yeah, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Bob. Nice to be on the show again. Thanks. 
podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast.